Greetings again to all of God's people. This is Mordecai Joseph. Last time we were sort of cut off in the middle of a, of a section. And we're going to go back to it now. We were in Proverbs 7. And in that Proverbs 7 we were reading about the story of the woman that misused all the proper ingredients of marriage with the wrong person. And of course that had a spiritual analogy to what Israel had done as we read previously to what Israel had done, as God described it in Ezekiel 16, and there are so many other places where God described basically the same thing. He gave everything to Israel. He made Israel a very glorious and beautiful bride, a wife, a nation. And instead of responding and using all the magnificent blessings that God gave Israel in terms of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, majestic law, and all the physical blessings... Instead of using all these things to glorify him, she used it to commit, in essence, harlotry or adultery or idolatry with other nations. And so this proverb is extremely rele- relevant in that direction. And I believe we were in either verse 21 or 22. Anyway, we'll uh, continue again from uh, verse 21. Might be a little bit repetition there. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. We're, we're talking about the man that was void of knowledge and understanding that was going in the wrong direction. Of course, Solomon is describing a physical uh, relationship here that is the wrong kind of a relationship, but the spiritual connotation is very plain there because all of his teachings have to do not only with physical examples of life, but those that have spiritual contents in the sense of the relationship of Israel to her creator. And so this woman that is using all the right things with the wrong person This is what she does in verse 21. With her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. Immediately, he went after her as an ox goes to the slaughter. He didn't stop down. He didn't sit down and think, is it right? What am I doing here? What have I been told by my mother, by my father? How does God look upon these things? You see, he hasn't... He didn't think at all about all these things for the simple reason he was so enraptured, he was so enticed, he was so given to his own passions and senses that he totally forgot himself. And so in verse 22 we read, he immediately went after her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stocks, till an arrow stuck his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know it, it would cost, cost his life. And in essence, this is what Solomon is trying to teach everyone else. And in essence, also you might say, this is exactly what God is trying to teach us through all the scriptures. This scripture would not be here in the Bible that has to do mainly with the relationship of God and his, and his people. Uh, and therefore, whatever we read in the Bible has both physical understanding and spiritual connotation also. And so he, this person did not think at all about what he was getting into. And he did not realize, because he wasn't thinking, that it's going to cost him his life. And not only physically speaking, but spiritually. And in essence, that would be the ultimate, you might say, destiny of all those who will go in that direction. They may not consider what is the end result. And so it is very important for us to understand from that point of view. And so Solomon tells, in essence, not only this person, but all of us. And you might say, God is speaking to all of us also through this 
very proverb, verse 24. Now therefore listen to me, my children. Pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to hair ways. Do not stray into hair paths, for she has cast down many wounded, and all who were slain by hair were strong men. They thought they were strong. Verse 27, her house is the way of, to hell, that is to the grave, to destruction, and ultimately the total destruction, descending to the chambers of death. And what you see here throughout the Bible from the beginning until the end, when you read statements, for example, come out of her, my people, come out of Babylon. And you know what it is speaking about? It's speaking about a woman, a woman that went astray. And even when Israel turned astray, God was calling his children, the individuals among them who were still willing to listen, to come out of that confusion that his own wife went into. And so this proverb has an awful lot of spiritual connotation there for all of us to consider. And that's in essence what he's talking about. This woman, physically speaking, and for that matter, even the one that is called later on in Revelation 17, the great whore, or even Israel that was attired in a glorious manner by God himself, they all repeated the same things. They used all the wonderful ingredients of the art of love. They created, so to speak, a sort of a garden of Eden. They had the Song of Songs setting. Things were under the sun. There were no inhibitions, no resistance to anything that was good, no restrictions. As the royal law commanded, love with all of your heart. Both Israel, when she sinned, went all the way using all these ingredients with all her heart. And so was also the fallen woman that is described in Revelation and other places but the prophets also in uh, Jeremiah, you see, uh, he's speaking about uh, Babylon and the glory of Babylon and the majesty of Babylon. And in John, in uh, Revelation of John, we read about John being so amazed by the glory of, of the woman that he saw, the spiritual Babylon. But God told us not to be attracted by those kind of things, but seduced by those kind of things when they are leading us in the wrong direction. And yet, on the other hand, all those things were given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. All those elements of the arts of love, the majesty, the glory of the creation, the, all the senses, all the blessings that God gave Israel were all for that purpose. So Israel can worship him with all of her being in heart. And likewise, all of us. And it's not only the physical things, but also all the spiritual things that God has given to his people Israel in terms of the law, in terms of knowledge and understanding, in terms of wisdom and comprehension and understanding heart, in terms of all that he had given to the spiritual Israel. All those things that God gave us is so that we may use them to his glory and to his honor and to his praise. That is the physical and the spiritual because one teaches you about the other. And so this woman in the Proverbs, Proverbs 7, and likewise Babylon, and likewise Egypt, and likewise Israel, when they went astray, they knew what works, what attracts, what seduces, what allures, and they used it, but with the wrong person, with the wrong God. And this is exactly what God is decrying, not only in this proverb through Solomon, but in many other places. And you see, the Sabbath teaches us that there is no other God but the one that created us, and to him all of our devotion should be. And all that he had given us through his law, all the knowledge and understanding, and all the physical blessings that he had given us, 
they're all for the purpose of us becoming one with him. And that's why the Sabbath was extremely important to him. And that's why he made it a covenant. And that's why he said that those who do not keep it, keep it will not enter into his Sabbath, the Sabbath of the future. And the Sabbath and marriage are basically related. The two are linked, the two are leading one to the other or explaining one another. We find in David, the man of God, the man who was according to the heart of God, we find him a man who was totally given to the worship of God. Yes, he had mistakes, he made mistakes, he had his own weaknesses and shortcomings being human. But generally speaking, he was a man that was totally devout and devoted to his creator, to his maker, to his rock, to the bridegroom, you might say. And that's why David became such an, a great lover, where with all of his being at heart, he poured his soul in worshiping God and serving God and honoring God. And he also taught others by example. And you read also in the Psalms, for example, the sons of Korah, they wrote many Psalms in the same spirit that David did, led by the same spirit also. Psalms of worship to God. We read, for example, in Psalm 42, where the sons of Korah, one of them, I don't know if it is one or some of them, uh, composed that. In uh, Psalm 42, we read to the chief musician a contemplation or meditation of the sons of Korah. And that's what they're, uh, they're saying here. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see the passion in that statement. You see the desire. You see the seeking of the face of God. You see the bride in essence. For that symbolized the, the, the idealized bride, bride of God. The way he wanted her to be. This symbolized that spirit of the desire for her maker. For her bridegroom. To be in his presence. To be united with him. And in the psalm... 119, David also is writing an awful lot of ingredients or teaches us an awful lot of ingredients about the arts of love. And he's basically using the law because the law taught him all these things. How is it that you come before God? With what attitude? With what feelings? With, a, with what passions and desires? What things must you do, spiritual and physical, to come before God and to become one with God? So you might hear that Psalm 119 is in essence a love song to the arts of love, to the, God, to the law of love, and to God himself. In Psalm 92, we can go to Psalm 92 where we read this about the Sabbath, where David, I believe, is speaking here, and the subject is specifically the Sabbath. And this is what he writes here. A psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. And specifically, remember, he's talking about the Sabbath. And also, mind you, that whenever we talk about the Sabbath, we're talking about marriage. We're talking about a relationship. We're talking about intimacy. We're talking about a sanctified time that God set apart for his bride, for men, for all of humanity in the future to come before him and have a totally devoted time to him and for the two of them to do things together. And so he's saying it is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name almost high, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night, on an instrument of ten strings, on the lute and on the harp, with harmonious sound, for you, Lord, have made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. 
And so you see, all those words of admiration, or in verse 5 you read, Oh Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know. That's one reason why many have no, have no knowledge or understanding or desire for the Sabbath. Because from God's point of view, they are senseless men, senseless women. They do not know, nor do the fools understand this. You see? They do not understand this. What will be the end? Verse 7, when the wicked spring up like grass, that's how they look in the beginning, they seem to be very successful. When all workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. They don't realize the end results of people who reject God, who reject the relationship with God, who reject the Sabbath that teaches him all those things, all these ingredients. And so it was extremely important for Israel and for mankind, though generally speaking most of mankind are cut off from God. But ultimately speaking, it is very important for them to realize the importance of the Sabbath. And that's why God put it in the middle of the Ten Commandments, and it's specific in the part of the royal law that has to do with the love toward God. And so those songs of the Sabbath are ingredients and teachings of the Sabbath, teachings and ingredients of the art of love, teachings and ingredients of the marriage, of a relationship. And mind you, when you learn that kind of a relationship with God, you're also learning all kind of relationships with your mate, with your children, with your neighbors, with your co-workers, with anybody, with a creation. Because all those ingredients are basically there to one degree or the other. The intimacy, in the sense of that intimacy between God and man, that is the highest form. That intimacy can be found in many areas of human relationships, depending on the type of relationship, depending on the various degrees of the relationship. And so we must learn to intimately sing to God, not just in services, but daily. There is no substitute for that with God. And if you can remember what the Apostle Paul said to the disciples, to all those who come to spiritual understanding, to all those who want to become a part of the bride, he said that you must be speaking to one another in psalms. It's not that he said, well, if you feel like it. No, he said, you must, you really have to. That's a part of the relationship to speak to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies in your heart to the Lord. If you're in the habit, there are many nations, many cultures, many peoples who are in the habit of constantly singing and therefore it becomes natural for them to be themselves composers, to be themselves uh, inventors of music, inventors of, of tunes, of melodies. It just comes natural, it becomes a part of them. And therefore, it becomes a natural talent, and God adds to it. And therefore, this is what Paul is saying here. And that's what you see throughout the whole Bible, from the beginning until the end. Because all these things are ingredients of the arts of love. And all these things in specific were to be present on the Sabbath day. As someone said, music is the highest form of expression of the human spirit. And so music is very important in the keeping of the Sabbath. And many people enjoy music, they enjoy music every day. And yet on the Sabbath it is a time specifically, not that you don't do it any other time, but specifically this is the time that God wanted his people to come before him and have that spiritual relationship with him through prayer, through fellowship, through singing, through melodies. And that's why in the temple there were always the choirs and musicians and the Levites that sang songs. 
And that's exactly what you see also in different descriptions about the throne of God, where the holy angels constantly sing to God. Music is extremely important, because music lifts up your spirit to the highest form of a relationship. And so that was also a part of the story of the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath is often related, and always I would stress that, and you should be thinking about it always from that point of view. Whenever we talk about the Sabbath, it's not just one day of rest, well, you've been tired because you worked six days and now you just need to rest. You just need to go to sleep. You just need to forget about everything else. No, it's so much more than that. Sabbath is marriage. Sabbath is relationship. Sabbath is intimacy. Sabbath is man and God becoming one. And when he learns to do those things also, he also learns to, in essence, emanate this understanding, this relationship, this ingredients in all of his human relationships with his mate, with his children, with the creation, with everybody else on the face of the earth. And therefore he's going to have rest instead of war and conflicts. And that's in essence what man has today. And the breaking of the Sabbath has an awful lot to do, much more than we may realize, to the state of chaos and confusion on the face of the earth. Now the Jews basically refer to the Sabbath as the bride, they call it Shabbat Malka, that is, bride the queen. Because they realize the importance of the Sabbath and the ingredients that are to be present on the Sabbath with the relationship between man and God. And so they regarded the Sabbath as the bride and they are welcoming, welcoming the bride every Friday night. And they are looking forward toward that time which is the supreme, the pinnacle time of the week. When they totally forsake all their works all their worries, all their conflicts, all their burdens, all their hardships of the week, and totally give themselves in a devotion to God. And of course, they have various degrees of understanding. And those that had a greater understanding of the ultimate purpose of the Sabbath had much more perception in keeping it the right way instead of making it a burden. And so there are various degrees there, as I mentioned before that previously, about the two houses anciently of the Shammai and Hillel, that taught different philosophies. But we're concentrating more on the house of Hillel, you might say, and in specific for us, what God teaches us about the Sabbath day. So both the Sabbath and marriage, which are related, because that's basically what it is, it's a relationship, it's a time for relationship, they must become the highest form of all of human activities and relationships. And this must involve, therefore, grooming, culture, music, etc., and all those things that are necessary for it, to elevate it to the highest form of a relationship, to the most beautiful time of the week. It is not something that is to be done in haste. It is not something that is to be done in a cheap manner and form. Because this, what, whatever we do on the Sabbath and all these ingredients that we are talking about, they lead to the spiritual marriage. They lead to the spiritual Sabbath. That's what is ahead of us. The day of rest, 1,000 years and beyond, with the bridegroom, with the creator, with the God of heaven and earth. And also, majestic and magnificent relationship with the creation and with all mankind. And so we have to look upon, upon the Sabbath from that point of view. It is so much greater and much more broader than just a couple of hours that we spend together thinking that we have done our duty and then we go home and do our own thing. This is not what God has in mind. And so the way to treat our Sabbath and our marriage tells God a lot about our relationship with Him. It tells Him an awful lot 
to the point that you can say, as we keep the Sabbath, I know, I know that person. I know what's on his heart. Just like he said to Abraham, now I know. And every Sabbath we have that opportunity. And of course for that purpose also, every moment in our lives. But in specific, when we totally go all out on that day, we tell him how much, how much we really want the kingdom, the future, eternity. How much we really want to be with him and be like him and be united with him. How much we want to be one with him. And so he tells us, if you cannot love your mate, whom you see, or your brother, or your children, or the physical things that you see, if you cannot have an appreciation for the small things that I gave you in this life, how are you going to have a tremendous appreciation, a great appreciation, or total devotion and appreciation for me for eternity? At what point would you say, I'm tired? I don't want to do it anymore. I want to do my own thing. You see, the Sabbath day is a magnificent opportunity for us in doing all those necessary things for the Sabbath, joyful things for the Sabbath, not just necessary in terms of obligation, but what is it that really takes to make a glorious Sabbath? In those things we prove to God that we want to be, we will be excited with Him for eternity because our heart is testifying, our emotions, our feelings, the way we behave on the Sabbath in preparation for it testifies to our desire for eternity. And so it's extremely important to think about the Sabbath from that point of view. And we have to remember that all the physical things that we do in this life are leading to the spiritual, are leading to eternal realities. And so the physical relationship, in particular marriage training, is a ground training, so, so to speak, for the future, for the spirit, for the 1,000 years honeymoon or rest with the bridegroom and beyond that. And if we fail in the physical, if we fail in the little ones, if we fail in one day out of seven to do that, how can we succeed in a thousand years? How can we succeed in eternity in making life for us with God a majestic, glorious reality? You see, that's why we are alive today in the flesh, in the clay. That's why we are given all these things. That's why God gave us the Sabbath. So we can be taught all these matters, so we can prepare for it. As you read in other places, the bride must make herself ready. That's our part in it, and the Sabbath is a magnificent time and progression for it to prove that. And so we must succeed now in order to be successful in the future. Because the physical things that we do today, as demanding as they are, they are so much less demanding than the spiritual which are so much more. And so in the physical, we have an opportunity to do so. Now, we are going to ask ourselves, well, how are we going to do all these things about the Sabbath? We don't have much experience, no background in, ma in many ways. Uh, after all, it's a reality that for 2,000 years, the majority of God's people didn't have really much of, a, of an experience in keeping the Sabbath. That was not a day that was being kept by the community out of which they came. Oh, yes, they had Sunday. Some called it Sabbath. They went to church. They had a couple of hours there. They sang a few songs, went home. That was the end of it. But you see, the Sabbath is so much more than that. And so people may ask, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, Paul is addressing this issue in terms of the people that God was calling out of the world in his days. And that's, in essence, what he's telling him, in uh, what he's telling everyone, actually, 
in uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. You all know what Paul is talking about because he's addressing, uh, you might say, Gentile issues, Jewish issues, the shortcomings on the part of both of them, and then the plus and the minuses of both of them. And so he ends up in one sense uh, speaking about the differences, the good and the bad, between the Jew and the Gentile. He says in chapter 3, what advantage does you know, the Jew have? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Now when Paul talked about the circumcision and the advantage, you have to understand the background from what from what he's speaking. If you don't know the background of Paul, what he's talking about, you know, you may not really comprehend what he's talking about. He's talking about all the advantages that the children of Israel had. And, and mind you, Paul, yes, he was a Jew, but he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And there were others from other tribes, few of them, individuals, not too many. But he's talking in essence about an Israelite that was raised on the law of God, that had the background, that understood what the Sabbath was all about, that understood the law of God, that understood what he was headed as he told Timothy later on, from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. You see? And that's in essence what every Jew that has been raised in, on, in, on, uh, uh, on the law of God, on the Torah, not all Jews were religious even at that time. Many of them just uh, gave up on God. But the many that did retain the knowledge, the faith, which were the majority of them at that time, unlike this generation, they had a great advantage on other nations who didn't have the knowledge of the law, nor the background, and so they did not really understand what is a relationship with God uh, all about. What does it entail? And so he's telling the nations. He's telling, telling the Gentiles that he's speaking to, as he said in other places, that you became followers of the churches of Judea. What does it mean followers of the churches in Judea? If Jesus Christ said salvation is of the Jews, so the nations, the Gentiles, the individuals, not really nations, but the individuals, that God was calling them, and that's something we also have to realize. God was not in the business in the New Testament of calling the Gentiles or the nations. He was, he was in the business of calling individuals out of them. As for the calling of all the nations, that's for the future. You see? Just like for Israel, it is for the future that God will call all Israel. But at that time, it was just individuals. And so the nations, or the individuals that were called all the nations of the earth, they wanted to know, okay, now that you tell us about Christ, now we want to know all about him, and where do we go for an example, you see? And so they became followers of the churches of Judea, followers in the sense of they wanted to know the law. They wanted to know the ways of God. And that's basically what Paul is talking about. What advantage does an Israelite, a man that has been brought like Timothy on the law, as he told Timothy, from a child you've been raised on the Holy Scriptures that were able to make, me, make you wise unto salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. In other words, you had known the path. You knew the way. You knew the law. You knew all about the Sabbath and the holidays and everything else and all the elements and the ingredients that make that path and that way that lead us toward God. It's not just believe on the Lord and that's all you have to do or you know, think that you, by grace or by love you make it. Oh no, it is much more than that. You have to know every word, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And how would you know it if you don't have a book in front of you? You see? And the nations didn't have it. The Gentiles didn't have it. They had to go to the synagogue. They had to go to the churches in Judea to, to find that. 
to, to learn of that. And that's basically what he is saying. What advantage then has the Jew or an Israelite or a servant of God who has been raised under the law, like Paul, like James, like Peter, like everybody else? What advantage does he have? Well, he says, and what profit does the circumcision? And he's not talking, talking only about the act itself. He's talking about all the body of knowledge that came to those who were of the circumcision in contrast to those who were not of the circumcision and therefore had no knowledge nor understanding. They didn't know what was happening in the temple. They didn't know what was happening in the synagogue. They didn't know what's happening in the word of God. And so he says, what advantage does the Jew or the Israelite or the servant of God that had all that information, all that background? He says, much in every way, chiefly because to them, to Israel, to Paul, who was a Benjamite, you see, to the prophetess that was from the tribe of Asher that was, was in the temple, to any other Israelites, to all those Israelites that lived at the time of the twelve tribes of Israel all around, and some of them on an individual basis came to the land because they still retained a measure of the knowledge, or they wanted to have a greater knowledge. They all had an advantage. And so he says, what advantage did they have? He says, much in every way. Because to them were committed the oracles of God. You see? And that's, in essence, what Paul is telling all the nations and all the peoples and all the individuals that he's talking to. That if you want to have knowledge and understanding, which you don't, because you just didn't have the background. It's not that you're less intelligent. It's not that you're uh, inferior whatever. The way things worked out, God chose Israel, and to them he gave the oracles and the knowledge of the law. So where do you go when you want to know those things? Well, to those who have it. And then when you come to that point, then by reading the word you would know what part of it is of God and what part of it was added by man. And that also comes into this equation. And so, for us, when we ask about the Sabbath, well, how are we going to keep the Sabbath? I mean, we've never been taught. We don't know what, how to keep the Sabbath. All we know is how to go to service and, and, and sit there and listen and then go home and that's the end of it. Well, we have an advantage here. Going to the Jews, so to speak. Going to the Israelites. Going to those who had the experience. Going to those who kept it, though they didn't have perfect knowledge and understanding. But to the measure of the knowledge that they had, let's go and learn from it. You see? As you find out later on in the future, as you read in the prophet, the time will come, the book of Zechariah, I believe, where there would be ten men of the nations that will hold on the spirit of him that is a Jew and will tell him, show us the way. We know that God is with you. We know that you have the knowledge. Show us the way. We want to go in that direction. You see? And that's in essence what we are talking about. Those who have the experience, go to them and learn. If there are others among other nations who went previously to the Jew, or at least who studied and learned and understood, and they too have a measure of knowledge and understanding, fine. You go to them too. Wherever there is information, this is where you go to. You want to know a word? You go to the dictionary. You want to know about the oracles of God? You go to those who have it. You want to know about the Sabbath? You go to those who kept it all these thousands of years and have a measure of knowledge and understanding about the Sabbath and what it is all about. And so there we find knowledge and information. And so if we do that, we're going to learn a few more things. And so that's in essence what I'd like to do now. Go to the Jews. I myself being a Jew, I do it by nature. And so I'm presenting it to those who may appreciate that kind of information. And the reality was that all of Israel at one time did know an awful lot about the Sabbath, about the holidays, but history tells us very plainly the tribes of Israel went astray 
Judah remained faithful, as you read in Hosea. Not perfectly faithful, had his problems and all that, but at least retained that knowledge, and that's what the whole world knows, the Sabbath and the Holy Days, and many things because of the nation of Judah. And for that matter, there were also a few others, uh, among other uh, peoples, that have kept a measure of it, and even among the children of Israel. And so, we go to a nation or a people that has a measure of knowledge and understanding, and that's in essence what we're going to do now. I'll also bring you some personal experiences since myself, I have been raised on that way of life. Now, you all heard about Friday as a day of preparation. You see, the Sabbath has many stages. Like anything else, before you reach a destiny, there are many things you do before that, to get to that point. And so the Sabbath needs preparation. You don't just stumble into the Sabbath, no more than a bride and a bridegroom just stumble into their wedding day. You see, there's a lot of preparation for it. And no more than the bride of God is going to just stumble into the marriage to come, into the Sabbath to come. No, there are stages that are leading to the climax. And so, there's a day that is called the preparation day. That's the purpose for it. That was the reason for it. A day to prepare for the Sabbath. In the preparation, we basically have four stages. We have the preparation that is in leading into the Sabbath. We have preparation one, and then we have the anticipation as you are preparing, and then as you go along with anticipation and constant preparation, you have a build-up, build-up of intense emotions and feelings, and finally you reach the climax or the consummation. And you can see there are the ingredients of marriage and a mar- marital relationship or a sexual relationship, physically speaking and spiritually speaking. Because after all, we're talking about a marriage. We're talking about an intimacy of marriage between God and man. And likewise, those elements that are found in the human relationship, and that's the reason why God gave us those relationships, because they're all leading to the spiritual one. Now, we need to know the story of the Sabbath, as it was in the temple, as it was in the synagogue, as it was in the congregation, as it was in the home of those who had knowledge and understanding for those who received the oracles, those who had a great advantage in that direction. You remember in Ezekiel chapter 46, uh, I don't think I went through that before that, but anyway, if you read Ezekiel chapter 46, among other places, you read an account of the millennium. God is on this earth, Christ is on this earth, He is in Zion, the temple is built, the priesthood is there, Israel is back in their land, and he gives them instructions in detail, that is, especially to the priesthood and to the people of Israel and to the rulers, what is it that they are supposed to do in the tabernacle, that is, in the temple, in the place of habitation of God himself. And if you read chapter 46 of Ezekiel, you see what God is telling them to do on the Sabbath. He is expecting Israel to come before him on the Sabbath day, to bring offerings to him on the Sabbath day to eat before him on the Sabbath day. And of course there is music, and there are all kinds of elements that are present there. The prince is to come before God, bringing an offering, and literally sitting by a table before God himself, who is going to be there in presence, in spirit, and eating before him. That's a part of the fellowship, a part of the Sabbath. And as we shall see later on, the ingredients that were copied 
in the community of Israel, which they kept to this very day, based on all these teachings that we find out from the beginning until the end. And that's, in essence, what God is, is telling the, the prince and the people of Israel to enter through a special gate, to bring offering to God, to sit before him, and to bring incense, and to be attired in glorious attire. You see, all those things are elements of the Sabbath. And that's, in essence, what we read in, in the Proverbs 7, where the woman attired herself, beautified her house, perfumed her bed, prepared an environment of a garden of Eden for a relationship. Because that's exactly what God was doing in the Garden of Eden. That's exactly what God is doing with his nation. And that's exactly what God is doing in the person that became Jesus Christ for his bride. He's beautifying his bride, removing any, every spot, every blemish, and making her glorious and beautiful. That's the only kind of bride he wants. And that's the only kind of a Sabbath he wants. A glorious Sabbath. And so you find an awful lot of preparation there. And the purpose of the preparation is to set the mood, sort of a choreography, the stage for the arts of love that are going to be partaken by the bride, spiritually speaking, with the bridegroom. And also that should be copied in the marital relationship between husband and wives. And also between friendships, that is, in different ways, different gradations, based on the relationship. You see, all these things are not for ignorant people. And it's not something that is very cheap. God is not interested in cheap relationships. He's not interested in dead works where there is no heart there, where things are not being done properly. With God, he wants it done according to his way, his knowledge, his information that he gave to Israel. And so you begin the Sabbath by the prepar uh, preparation. Uh, you might say ceremony, but it's not really a ceremony. It's something that you go through and you do and you're conscious of and your mind is being prepared and your body is being prepared and your environment is being prepared. So, one of the things that you do for the preparation, shopping for the Sabbath, shopping for special items. When you look for them, when you buy them, when you pick them up, on your mind you think it's for the Sabbath, it's for a relationship, it's between me and God, it's between me and my family, and your mind is being prepared that way. And so you go shopping and you buy all those kind of special things, and then you come home and you prepare the home, and you prepare the table, and you prepare all kind of good foods. You see, when Israel came to the tabernacle, and when they came to the temple, God demanded all kind of good things to be there. Not only the sin offering and all the things that people had uh, during the week, but when they came on the Sabbath, they had special offerings for the Sabbath, and they brought fine meal, and they brought honey, and they brought incense. God demanded all those things, because these are all ingredients of relationship, of intimacy. You all know when you get together on either... Uh, Thanksgiving, or special occasions, or even for people in the world on Christmas or any other uh, holiday that they have. The reason why they like to come together or supposedly observe those holidays is because they can sit together and eat and delight their souls and have wonderful conversation and beautiful relationship and fellowship and all that. You see? These are all ingredients of the arts of love. And God demanded all those things. And so in the preparation for the Sabbath, these things must be present. And so, in essence, you are recreating a mini temple in your house. And the house must be seductive, and all the things that you put together must be attractive and alluring for God and for the holy angels to come and visit your home, your temple. And then you have the third item, clothing. Preparing the clothing for the Sabbath. Preparing the best attire that you have. How do you appear before the great king? When people have an interview for a job, they don't put in overall, they don't put uh, you know, working clothes on. 
soiled clothes. They don't. They don't, they don't come uh, unattractive, unattired, unkempt, ungroomed. No, no. They do everything they can to put on a, wonderful, a beautiful appearance. You see? And how much more so when we appear, let's say, before a governor? And how much more so before the president? And how much more so when we appear before the king of the universe? How do we come before him? How do we dress up? How do we prepare ourselves? What do we put on our children? You see? When God looks at all these things, he sees our heart. And when he sees the way we appear before him, he says, I know what that kind of person is all about. All I have to do is look at him. Look at his heart. Look at what he had done before he came before me. You see? Those things are extremely important. So when we think about the Sabbath, let's realize it's so much more deeper than we may think that it is. It's not a two-hour, let's go through it, get it over with, do our duty and go home. That's dead work. That's totally meaningless to God. That is something that God says, that's a stench and an abomination in my sight. I'm not interested in that, you see? And therefore, we must know the ingredients. And we must know the oracles of God and what God has in mind and what's the purpose of it. And so we are preparing through clothing, shoes and dresses for ladies and a, and a suit or whatever we have that is nice and pleasant and good. It doesn't have to be a suit. It doesn't have to be this fanciest thing that we have. It has to be a glorifying thing to God. Clean, wholesome, attractive, alluring, seductive. In other words, something that represents God. That which is not representative of God should not be placed on our bodies or on our hair or on our feet, so to speak, when we come before God. So it is very important. And you remember, if you read in the book of Leviticus, and before that if you read in the book of Exodus, when Moses went up to heaven, that is to the Mount of Sinai. You remember what I covered about heaven, going to heaven before that. But when Moses came up before God, after he gave him the law, then he began to expound to him, how is it that he won his tabernacle? What kind of elements must be in it? What kind of clothing the priest, the high priest and the priest must put on? What kind of perfume? Everything was in detail, showing you how important it is for God. How attiring it should be. How seductive. How alluring. How beautiful. How wholesome. You see, all those things were elements that were transported, or tra uh, you might say, uh, basically copied in the human relationship of Israel. In the marriage, in the Sabbath, in the holy days, in coming before God. You see, in human relationships. And so all these things are very important. And I remember when I was a child, well, a little bit older than a child, uh, one of my main jobs on preparation day on the Sabbath was a shoeshine boy. Everybody left their shoes on the side in the corner, and I went over there and gladly, and that was a joy. And I remember I was singing. It was a happy occasion. It was not, oh, no, why do I have to do it? What a hassle, what a burden, what a bore. I haven't thought that way because, you see, in my mind I was already being prepared for years before that, at least a few years that all these things are elements of the preparation for the Sabbath, where there is going to be singing and laughter and good food, you see, and joyful things to partake of. And so that was a burden of love. That was not a burden of unpleasantness. It was a labor of love. And so it's important when we prepare all those things, 
But in our minds, as Paul said, we should be giving praise and honor and glory to God because, as Paul would say in other words, whatever you do, you shine your shoe, you prepare your body, you take a shower, you know, you pre- prepare the house, you go shopping, you see, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. It is not a cliche, it is not an ethereal preaching, you see, it is not an ethereal teaching, it is a reality. And if you do it like that, through every moment that you are doing it, God says, I know what that person is all about. Because I see him in every moment, how he goes about doing all those things, day and night. Even plotting all kind of things, how he's going to do all kind of good things to prepare for the Sabbath. Because he knows he's coming before me to have a relationship with me. Then God delights himself in us and comes into our midst and is in our presence. He's not coming to a place where people are bored to death or half asleep and they just sit for a couple of hours and, and, you know, they cannot sit on their behind, so to speak, anymore and they'd rather be somewhere else. That doesn't turn on God. He's not, you know, present in those circumstances. And so it is important to remember that. You see, there is what I call the biblical sensuality. That is the pleasing of the senses. You see, when you prepare all the senses in terms of music, good food, nice table, Beautiful house, preparation of a mind for all those things. This is the true biblical sensuality, the pleasing of the senses. And so when God created the Garden of Eden, when he, made it, when he did it with his own hands and put Adam in it in there, it says that he did everything that was pleasant to the sight and something that tastes really good, you know, all the food that he, that he created, fruit trees, something that really tastes good because, you see, the senses that God gave us are to be pleasing to God. And we are to use them to serve God and to please God and to please men in the right way, not to please ourselves in the wrong way. You see, that's when the wrong sensuality comes about. The senses that God gave us are to be used in a manner to glorify God and also to glorify our parents and also to please human beings. You see, that's why we take care of our yards and all kind of things like that. Uh, because we want to please not only ourselves, but the environment, the community. You see, we must find always favor in the sight of God and man. God wants us to be that kind of people. At this point, we're going to stop and continue in the next uh, study. Until then, this is Mordecai Joseph again, saying greetings to all of God's people. The preceding message was taken from the World Wide Website at address www.biblestudy.org. This site is sponsored by Barnabas Ministries. Bible study. You have questions? The Bible has answers.